0: Alright, so we are in a series in the life of Moses and, and this summer we're going to take some time um, and, and into the fall considering this man Moses, uh, the work that God is doing through him um, and for the nation of Israel. It's a pivotal story. Exodus will become this paradigmatic story that applies to Jesus, applies to many ways that we as the followers of God come to understand both God and how we relate to and walk with him in this world. The story of Exodus is incredibly important. So we began with the story a few weeks ago of Moses' birth. How his mother, his sister, how the daughter of Pharaoh, many women in his life came together to create for him the opportunity uh, to survive a, a terrible time in the story of Israel as they were slaves in Egypt. Moses grows up then in the house of Pharaoh, in the highest house in the land. At about 40 years old, he sees a slave being abused, one of his people, one of the Hebrew people being beaten, and he lashes out and he kills an Egyptian man, and then runs into hiding uh, out into the desert into Midian, where he becomes a shepherd, and he marries and works his father-in-law's cattle or sheep. After about 40 years as a shepherd out in Midian, God comes to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, Moses, I'm asking you, I'm calling you, go back to Egypt and lead my people out of slavery. As you can imagine, Moses had a lot of questions and concerns. So last week, Sarah spoke on the concerns of Moses and the provision of God, God's promises to Moses as he would enter Egypt. And so this week, we continue the story of Moses and his experience found in the book of Exodus in your Bible, the second book in your Bible. And here we see Moses begin to engage with Pharaoh. Moses began to speak to Pharaoh about what God is doing and what is about to transpire. Exodus chapter 5 verse 1 says this, After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice, to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So, they begin the conversation with Pharaoh with a relatively simple request. Let our people go for three days for a festival into the desert. Now, this is something that will become central in the life of Israel. These celebrations, these festivals, these times of remembering what God has done. And many of their festivals for the next thousands of years on to today will revolve around the events that take place in Egypt. Uh, the Passover and the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. All of these things will become central to the ways Israel kind of relive and reimagines what God has done and then dreams of God, what God is still doing and will do in the future. So they ask, we want to have one of these festivals. And Pharaoh's response is quite interesting. He says, I don't know this God. Who is this God that you speak of that says your Israelite people, the Israelite people should be able to go and do this if you remember weeks ago or if you've read the story of Moses, you might remember at the burning bush, Moses asking a similar question of God. One of his complaints or concerns is, what if I go and tell them God sent me and, and, and I don't know who to call you, like who do I say sent me to do this? You might remember God chooses for himself, a name that is the most broad, most vast name that the Hebrew language could afford him. He said, my name is I Am. It could be translated also as, uh, I am who I was, or I will be who I will be, right? It is this continuous idea of I am, I exist, just the broadest term that, that the Hebrew language would afford him. And so Moses here, when asked, so I don't know this God that you're speaking of, it, it's interesting to me that he doesn't go into the detail of the name with Pharaoh. Right? He doesn't go into explaining to Pharaoh exactly who this God is. Because in fact, it is God that will do the explaining through his actions in Egypt in the time, in the days and months to come. Next week, we'll look at the ten plagues as God begins to take on, uh, the gods of Egypt. You see, as Pharaoh says, I don't know this God that you speak of. That's probably because his mind is so filled with the thousands of gods. I've seen estimates over 2,000 gods that the ancient, ancient Egyptians, uh, worshipped. Um, but Pharaoh knew plenty of gods. He'd never heard of this Yahweh, right? He knew gods of the harvest and he knew gods of the water and the Nile and gods of fertility and all of these gods, but he'd never heard of this God of Egypt, this God called Yahweh. And so he says, I don't know who this God is. We've got plenty already forget the request that you're making. And so God will go on to describe to Pharaoh or demonstrate to Pharaoh precisely who he is. In verse 4, we continue, uh, but the king of Egypt said, Moses, uh, yeah, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. So we see in this um, the cruelty of Pharaoh, uh, which we've seen in multiple pharaohs throughout the story of Exodus and and leading up to it. Multiple cruel, cruel rulers uh, over the enslaved Israelite people. But we also see his strategy, and, and I think it's a, a telling one: make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. He says, if we just work them so hard that they have no time to listen to or talk with each other uh, or or consider the things that they're hearing, well, then we will be able to keep this numerous people. Now, this week, like I said, we were out camping, so I didn't get to spend as much time in my Logos Bible app and exploring, but I want to say I've heard numbers. Someone confirmed this for me. Um, as the Israelites leave Egypt, is it approaching a million people? Is that is that what I've heard, or is there some question on that? 600,000 men is the number that we heard. Okay. So, a numerous people. What I, what I just wanted to explain and consider is the vastness of this people, right? And so when Moses comes into this nation and he says, we want to go and we want to take a break. Keep in mind, uh, much of the Israelite, um, society is built up on the back of Uh, numerous, numerous people enslaved in their nation. Can you imagine if and when, eventually, uh, as we continue the story, they lose this kind of a workforce? And so Pharaoh is quite defensive. Both out of cruelty and strategy, he says if we just work them harder, then we will be able to deal with this situation. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 15, so uh, we might have to jump forward a little bit. But in verse 15, the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. They start with Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are um, given no straw, yet we are told to make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. They say, this is unjust. This is not right. This is not fair. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to our Lord. Now, Get to work, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The, the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are, not, uh, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. All right, we're going we're to spend just a couple minutes here uh, parsing this text and considering what's happening in this moment. The first is this, the Israelite people being oppressed with no opportunity, enslaved in a nation, are now being given requests they cannot fulfill and being called lazy for not accomplishing them. This is an incredibly broken, corrupt, and cruel system, one that Pharaoh has imposed very intentionally on these people. And he says, you're just lazy. That's, that's why you're not accomplishing what I'm asking you to do, knowing full well that there is little opportunity, if any, for them to accomplish what has been expected of them. I was thinking about this concept um, this week, and I want to take a little sidebar I want to take a moment just to consider um, something, as I heard this term lazy, and as I explored the text this week, uh, what came to myself and Sarah as we were in conversation on, on this concept um, is the ways in which every society creates these structures and situations that are unjust and unfair, where people do not have opportunity and yet are often called lazy or whatever else for not rising up within society, right? And I want to pause. This is a little bit different, uh, but shares in common this idea of calling uh, lazy people with little opportunity. And I want to talk about our homeless population for just a moment in our nation. And I don't do this as a Exact parallel to the text, but instead a way in which we, as followers of Jesus, considering what is justice and hope and opportunity for people look like in this world, uh, to consider a little aspect of our society. Okay, um, so so run with me just for a couple minutes here while we explore this. One of the reasons this is heavy on my heart, and I hear it in the text, is because one of my friends is experiencing homelessness right now, and we're we're walking with her as as she um, through social programs and things, tries to find housing, um, a number of my friends uh, at, at one point in their life have experienced homelessness. And every few years, uh, we as a church, I as a pastor, find myself drawn back into this world and seeing the brokenness of it. And so I don't think it was by accident, but I didn't go seeking it, that I heard on NPR and one of the programs that I listen to regularly, um, a story about homelessness this week that I want to briefly describe to you. It tells the story of um, a hotel in Tacoma, here in the Northwest, uh, being closed down. Uh, There was a time in our nation kind of pre-1960s when hotels played incredibly important uh, roles in society. Uh, As a kid moved out of their house, often they would rent for a month at a time an extended stay hotel room. Kind of that was a transition point. If you moved to a new area, you'd kind of enter into the housing market in one of these hotels. And the very bottom rung of what was really a very vast and diverse opportunity or experience in the world of hotels, um, the very bottom rung was called single occupancy rooms, okay? And sometimes they'd have a kitchen off the knot and they would almost always have shared restrooms, right? And this is a very low bar way for people to keep a roof over their head. Now, the problem with uh, these places was that um, there was, they were often, the, the conditions were atrocious. No one wanted to live there. But this was like the one foothold people had to stay out of homelessness in our society. Naturally, um, our, our urban developers started to ask questions of, like, the conditions and say, this is not okay, People should not be living like this. And so through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, both legislation and just natural gentrification and the process of purchasing, uh, properties to elevate them and make more money out of them, um, for a number of reasons, uh, single occupancy residencies were, uh, decreased drastically. For instance, Seattle and LA, uh, cut in half. This article tells the story of um, a, a reporter who watches homelessness uh, saying, for the first time, I witnessed it happening before my eyes, right? I've studied this for years but I witnessed homelessness taking place as uh this hotel in Tacoma was purchased and then was going to be renovated uh into a nicer place. And he interviewed all these people and uh, asked them and, and and many of them said we don't know where we go next. So one lady said uh I, I mean my van uh, that picks me up for dialysis every week uh it needs an address and I don't have one to give to them and today is the day we leave, right? And um and so uh he Three years later, uh, just this last year, um, he went back to find as many of those people he interviewed as possible. And three years later, of the 12 people that he could find, five of them were deceased. And many of them had experienced homelessness after this decline. You see, there was nothing in place for them. In fact, this woman that he mentioned on dialysis, uh, she passed eight months after leaving. Her family members spoke of her plight and her inability to get to her appointments, and she passed eight months later. You see, uh, sometimes we find ourselves in um, societal places and situations where it's just easier to kind of look the other way or place the blame on the people suffering in that moment, right? Societally, it's easy to say, well, it's laziness that put them in that situation. And yet, sometimes there's major obstacles that people don't have a foothold left, right? So many people in those situations... Uh, I, I Uh, I better not say the number because I might forget it. So many people in those situations had nothing else to turn to when that last opportunity. And it's a difficult question because the conditions were atrocious. And if we're going to make laws about what uh, real estate looks like in our nations, you would say, this is not going to work. And yet people had nothing else. And it's one of the factors that contributes to the homelessness problem that we have in our nation. Okay. That was heavy. I throw it out there, though, uh, just as food for thought to recognize that there are times in which, as followers of Jesus, we ask these really hard questions of what's happening in the nation around us. And while people around us might want to say, well, this has to do with laziness, sometimes we say there might be other systemic things happening around us. Now, if that sounded heavy, I want to now jump back into the text and the story of Pharaoh. If what I describe in in our society sounded like, wow, that was kind of depressing, absolutely take that and multiply it by whatever, because Pharaoh is intentionally uh, breaking the backs of the Israelite people, uh, actually with straw. You've heard the expression, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, like that's literally what's happening to the Israelite people, with straw, breaking the backs of the Israelite People, things have gone from bad to worse. If it wasn't bad enough, their enslavement, now conditions are being placed upon them that they absolutely cannot live into and engage. So in verse 20, um, uh, we read it a minute ago, but let me refresh. Uh, they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. The Israelite people lash out at the people closest to them, those that are actually trying to help them, Moses and Aaron, and they say, may the Lord judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and you've put a sword in his hand to kill us. Things have gone from bad to worse. Have you ever ever noticed how when things aren't going well in life, it's easiest or maybe it's most natural to try to find someone to blame for what's happening? Right? Have you ever experienced that in your life? a real struggle, and it's so easy to look out at someone else and say they are the reason for the hurt or the challenge that I'm experiencing right now in my life, and the Israelite people do exactly that, and there's some truth to what they say, but in fact, Moses and Aaron receiving that, um, that shame or that anger or frustration from the Israelite people are in fact going to turn it now, try to deflect it uh, back to God. The story continues in verse 22, Uh, Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? As if they weren't already in trouble, but why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. What a statement. And you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God was not working within the time frame and the expectations of the people, of Moses or the people. And if I'm honest, their crying out is quite fair. Their circumstances are not good. It's interesting to me that when God responds to Moses' complaints, God, you know, you have uh, brought trouble to this people and you haven't even come close to rescuing them. You are really failing at your job in this moment, God, is what Moses is saying to him. God doesn't respond to the past or even the present. And I kind of wish he would. I wish I could hear the word of God in this moment saying why he had allowed this to happen or why this was happening in the lives of the Israelites. And we can glean a little, a few pieces of that, and we're going to talk about some of those details in future lessons as it comes out. But instead of speaking to the past or the present, he said, I want you to look forward. Here is what I am going to do. I am going to free my people I am going to conquer the gods of Egypt and demonstrate to Pharaoh who I am. You know, often when we find ourselves in these broken systems and places, when we're suffering, when injustice comes our way, we find ourselves asking incredibly challenging questions. Why would God allow this to happen? Or even, why did God cause this to happen? Constantly, as I counsel people that are going through difficult times, I hear these questions. Either God allowed it or God caused it. And sometimes in our Christian circles, we give these really tried answers like, well, God has a reason for this, and sometimes that's very accurate. God is doing something major. But I think the other thing we need to consider when we see suffering like this is the fact that evil has taken hold in this world, and we turn to God asking God, what will you and what do we get to participate in doing in this evil? Like sin has taken hold of this world. And I don't just mean sin in like a transactional way. I did something wrong. I sin. I mean this oppressive power of evil and sin that has taken hold in this world is doing its work, is doing specifically what it is designed for. And so we cry out to a God who has a mighty hand, who can and who will bring about hope and justice. But none of that dissipates the challenge that we face when we find ourselves in that moment of suffering, right? In that moment in which I have no ability, no leverage, no foothold to lift myself from this moment. And so like the Israelites, and so like Moses, we have very valid questions of God, What is happening? And where are you in this moment? And God said to Moses in this moment, in this story, just watch what I will do with this circumstance. In chapter 6, verse 2, it gives a little bit more detail of God's response. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. These are the forefathers of the nation of Israel that is now a vast nation in slavery in Egypt. I established my covenant with them to give them my land, Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. That is, the forefathers moved to Canaan. They lived there for a season until a drought that brought them down to Egypt, but they resided there as foreigners. God had promised, I will give you this land. And as a small nation, as a small people, they moved to that land and they were foreigners in a vast land. Now they are a vast people down in Egypt. God is saying, I have had a plan from the beginning that I have been working out. Moreover, he says in verse 5, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. God says, not only have I remembered the covenant that I made with them, but My relationship with the Israelite people um, and my covenant, the working of it, will all be heightened, Moses, in this experience of Exodus. Moses is going to draw the people into closer relationship with God than they have ever known, right? God is going to, through Moses, reveal himself in ways that he never has, beginning with this name, Yahweh, I am. God says, I am here and watch what I do. Now, there's a fascinating piece as we conclude uh, our text for today, and I'm not going to read it, but uh, verse 6 on into chapter 7, um, you're going to see the story of Moses' response and 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 uh, further instruction of what God wants them to do. And Moses' response is telling. It's, in fact, what he started with at a burning bush with God. Moses, in, in uh, verse 12, uh, I don't think I have it up here, but Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now, God had said to him previously, I'll send Aaron, and God will confirm that with him here in chapter 7. He'll say, understand, I am sending Aaron, and he will be your voice. He will speak for you. But again, Moses, in this incredibly broken and challenging moment here in uh, God's calling for his life, he kind of says, I just want to give up, God. Remember, I can't even speak well. The Israelites don't believe me. They won't listen to me. Why would Pharaoh for a moment listen to me or believe me? I can't even speak well. Moses wants to kind of just let go and be done. I think it's become hopeless. Every effort God we've made has made things, in fact, worse instead of better in this moment. Now, this series is, after all, about Moses. um, And I, I find... Moses' response, um, typical of human nature. Uh, have you ever found a moment, and maybe in this season, I know through a couple years of pandemic, I had many experiences myself with this feeling and talked with many others that do, but do you ever just want to throw your hands up and say, I'm not sure this is worth it anymore? It's just not working out. I think it's human nature to do that. But what does it look like, as followers of Jesus, as participants in the kingdom of God, in the church, what does it look like to choose something other than giving up? And I don't want to belittle how difficult the circumstances were. This is major. This is life and death stuff. This is tragic and oppressive things taking place. So it's not like Moses is weak in this moment. But I think his trust is faltering, and he finds himself in a moment where he says, I kind of just want to be done with all this. What does it look like to choose something different? In these seasons of suffering, when we're crying out to God, saying, God, where are you? And God is saying, I will accomplish what I intend to. Trust in me in this season. What does it look like to engage differently? This week I came across this um, quote from C.S. Lewis. And uh, it says this, and I'll go a little bit slow because I don't have it on the screen. It says, I have received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering. I haven't received any assurance that anything we do will eradicate all suffering. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives. People that work at limited objectives. He goes on to list a few things like um, the abolition of slave trade or prison reform or uh, factory acts or tuberculosis. All these things that were ailing in his era and many of them still today. A society struggling. He says, but if people will work towards limited goals wherever they see evil. Um, he says, the best objectives come from those working at limited objectives, not by those who think they can achieve universal justice or health or peace, right? Sometimes we hear these grand schemes and plans usually thrown out by our politicians that say, we can fix all of this. We'll just do this. And those are good. We need those big, broad things. But C.S. Lewis is challenging us, what does it look like each of us, in the midst of suffering, to engage. He mentions these engaged in these limited objectives. He says, "I think the art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil as well as we can." Now, I don't know if C.S. Lewis' description here—it's uh, obviously not comprehensive—and we could read a lot more of his books and materials to see more. Um, but it gives me a glimpse of hope. Uh, in, in systems that are broken, unjust, where people are suffering, where I myself in a season might be suffering, to say where evil exists, the followers of Jesus are invited with limited objectives to engage in ways that bring about a little bit of change. And would you imagine with me if that was the perspective of the global church? If the perspective of the global church was in my neighborhood, in my community, in my state, or in my nation, as far as I have leverage and reach, I will be engaged in bringing about a little bit of healing, a little bit of reconciliation and peace in the midst of the suffering that evil has brought in this world. It's small. It sounds almost too small, but is it a glimmer of hope? in a season that has been challenging, in maybe the suffering and challenges you might be experiencing in this moment of life? Is it enough of a foothold to say, and so I will take that next step. I will climb to that next rung. I will go ahead because God is good. God has a good plan, and God is bringing healing and reconciliation in this world. And in our finite years, in our few years we have to engage in this life and this world, it can be really hard to see it coming about in this moment. But as we look, like sto- look at stories like the story of Moses, we see this drawn-out story in which God is bringing about the things he promised. God is a God of reconciliation and healing and love. We as followers of Jesus are invited to be agents in that. The reconciliation, the healing, and the love that he is bringing into this world, that is what the kingdom of God is all about. And Jesus described this kingdom as an inaugurated kingdom. That means he says it is here and still coming in its fullness. It is both here and coming. And it comes as his followers, demonstrating the love that they have received from him, engage in the evil of this world, and with limited objectives, engage in ways that bring about love, healing, and hope in the lives of our community. So as we explore the life of Moses, we see a man, overwhelming odds, overwhelming circumstances, at times saying, I just want to give up. The good news is, and we'll see in weeks ahead, he doesn't. In what ways he can, he speaks the word of God into the vast systems of injustice and challenge that he's facing, and God, who is faithful, will bring about new hope for the Israelite people. Let's pray about that. God, I thank you that you are a God of hope and healing, and God, uh, from our limited vision, from our limited perspectives, uh, God, as we look around at the world similar to Moses or the Israelites, we say, God, where are you and what are you doing? God, teach us to trust. Teach us to realize that in your time and for your purposes, you are bringing about the things that you have promised, the hope and reconciliation and healing for this world and humanity. God, will you, as we learn to trust in you, uh, continue to use us to bring about those things? God, teach us what it is to be a people um, who engage in the things you call us to the little things you invite us to that bring about healing and hope in the lives of people around us. God, give us eyes to see this world the way that you do, to see people in the ways that you do, and in compassion and love reciprocated um, by the compassion and love that you give us. In compassion and love, may we engage in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.